Promise No Promises, Women on Earth. As a sequel to Promise No Promises and Women in Space, the third symposium at the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel was dedicated to Earth, its ideas, its spin, its possible dark futures. With Women on Earth, we were seeking to understand the relations between feminism and species coexistence. The issue of nature and of all that is naturalized or deemed unnatural by hegemonic discourses and policy is of particular importance to gender issues, as is science. But a scientific and technical approach to the climate emergency cannot be accurate without taking into consideration how gender, racial and economic violence foster our emergent ecocides, nor by how women, often poor and indigenous women, are overwhelmingly at the forefront of this violence as the very first recipients of. What kind of political and cultural transformation must occur to make these entanglements obvious and of vital concern? How to counter this violence in all its manifold forms? Feminists and global feminisms have always shared a critical concern for science, being that this has long been the field on which the subjugation of women and all the world's others has rested in part. The critique of a patriarchal pseudoscience is also built into feminism by its very nature. And what is that? By addressing questions of a female nature, whatever that is, and by addressing the question of human nature, another ringing question, and then deconstructing both, we not only lay open the question of the power of knowledge, but also the more epistemological questions. What to do with objectivity? What to do with certain notions of distance or neutrality? What to do with an increasing quantification of what we call scientific knowledge? How do we beat the regular and systematic recurrence of exclusion of the same others who recur and repeat across history and its power struggles and the persistence of this process of othering itself? Our guests were Rosella Biscotti, Neha Choksi, Ingela Iermann, Institute of Queer Ecology, Sophie Jung, Lusanne König, Thomas Lempertz, Agnes Meyer-Brandis, New Mineral Collective, Tanja Busse and Emilia Scanolutje, Katrin Niedermeyer, Heather Philipson, Mathilde Rosier and Lena Maria Thüring. I have a thing for rocks. I um, love picking them up. I love feeling the heft of them in my palm. Um, I like looking at them, observing them, thinking about them until I eventually drop them, um, the stone back to earth. Once, however, when I was a child, a very small child, my friends and I snuck into a neighboring garden. Um, there were rose bushes growing there with a circle of stones neatly encircling each bush. My friends had the idea that, well, we should pluck the yellow and pink rose bushes, uh, rose flowers off the bushes. Me being a child, I thought, um, I got it in my head that throwing a rock at the bush might dislodge multiple flowers efficiently. I don't think I realized that throwing a stone meant hurting the plant, or least of all, the rock itself. I threw the rock, it hit my friend's eyebrow, 
blood and petals mixed and uh, all sorts of mayhem ensued and I was told never to throw rocks. In fact, my whole life I'd been told not to kick rocks as part of our religious upbringing. I grew up in India. But I'd not put two and two together. I'd not extrapolated that if I can't kick them, I probably shouldn't be throwing them. I was a Pacific child, actually, raised very, very um, nonviolent. However, something, something was the problem, and my family was doubly distressed that this had happened. And I, they doubled down their efforts, um, reinforcing that I would only increase aggression within myself if I were to throw rocks. They implied, do I want to be aggressive? Naturally not. So no more kicking, no more throwing for Neha. And it follows, in a world full of aggression, what are humanity's chances for peace on Earth? How much more violence and destruction can we take? And what can we artists do if we're committed to making art with visual and material means? I was not thinking about all of this uppermost when I made this video that I'm about to show you. The work explores the contestation between philosophical idealism and materialism through stone meeting human flesh. Two stories are relevant to this piece. One I already explained, which is my Jane upbringing that told me not to kick rocks, not to throw stones. Um, it, the prohibition is aimed at avoiding sowing any seeds of aggression in our minds, in our relationships with each other, and in our relationships with the world around us. The other story is a sort of controversial uh, 18th century philosophical debate uh, between George Bishop Berkeley, the English idealist, and Samuel Johnson, who gave English language its own first English dictionary. Um, George Bishop, Bar George Bishop Barclay, when I say he's an idealist, it means that he's somebody who thought that the entire world is a mental construct in a way. Uh, he has a famous phrase in Latin, esse est percipi, which means to be is to be perceived. Some of you may know this story. Uh, Samuel Johnson, who's a materialist, you know, he's a guy who is about the things of this world. He's about naming this, categorizing that, like figuring out the dictionary for the English language. When he heard this phrase and he heard this this idea that this entire theory of George Bishop Berkeley, he got up immediately, kicked an unmovable stone, injured himself, and said, I refute it thus. Now, this is not a strong refutation in philosophical terms, but it, but it is a dismissal of idealism. And at some point, I am asking difficult questions about idealism versus materialism through this piece. Uh, I'm not going to explain the curtain. There's a lot more going on there. Um, but it is an interplay between the body's playfulness and its gross temptations, my gross temptations, and the refined mental calculus that you need to counter violence. Um, the second piece that I wanted to show is a significant excerpt from a piece that is a four-channel video installation. It's a piece that's about our relationship with the sun, our conflicted and complicated relationship with the sun, and... Um, it tries to balance everything that we feel about it um, through this piece. It's divided into four channels because the first channel is about birth, the second channel is about life, the third channel is about death, and the fourth channel is about our indirect relationship with the sun. And the entire piece is called Everything Sunbright, 
in the womb lives, ever rehearsing the end indirectly. So the channel that you see on the left is the birth channel, and it features my research in the vast archives of the oldest colonial solar observatory in India. I wanted to work with something satisfactorily bodily and even performative, so I decided to focus on the 40 weeks that I was in my mother's womb, which is a time when I didn't directly experience the sun's rays, but was a beneficiary of its largest through my mother's exposure. And those are the drawings that you see on the left. Um, the two eyes that you see uh, on either side are an image of um, a friend of mine viewing her own child. Uh, they are superimposed eyes, sets of eyes of the mother and the child looking at each other. And they go in and out of register. Uh, there's lots of other things in all these channels, but this is the kernel on which these channels were built. Uh, the second channel is built around drawing the delta in Bangladesh, which is the largest delta in the world, which means it's nothing but river. The entire country is a series of rivers, which means it's uh, going under very quickly. A climate scientist told me that they expect 25% of their land to be underwater uh, since when they started as a country, and uh, which is in the 70s, and that by 2030, 30% will be underwater. Um, it's creating huge pressures on India already uh, in terms of climate refugees. Um, the channel in the center is about life, and um, the performance involved nine pairings of children with adults. The children drew their relationship with the sun in certain set ways. Um, uh, set questions were set to them depending on their age. They ranged from 7 to 13. And the adults then came in towards the end of the day and interacted with them from the point of view of their profession, uh, which ranged from um, climate scientist to a psychiatrist, from a fashion designer to an archaeologist. The nine-day performance started with a mother and a daughter pairing. Uh, and ended with a dramaturg and a child actress with both pairs of women and girls intimately known to each other. However, everybody else was, were strangers to each other. And the channel about death was shot at, at an installation created for the Biennale of Sydney. This is the channel I will play for the purposes of this symposium because I was careful to audition for and seek to collaborate with a dancer who was a female-identified feminist past childbearing age, and as old as possible, who was at that point in time 63. Her name is Alice Cummins. My name is Tanya Bassi. I'm from Canada, but I'm currently based in Norway. This is Emilia Skarnolita, originally from Lithuania, also based in Tromsø. And together we form New Mineral Collective, um, which, is a, which is a platform that looks at contemporary landscape politics and also tries to sort of understand the extent of humans' interaction and also uh, traces that are left upon the earth. And so as an organism, we infiltrate the shady realm of the extractive industries um, with alternative forces, or we try to, uh, such as desire and body mining and acts of counter-prospecting, which we'll get into a bit later. We do this through trying to use multiple points of view. Uh, that can be through different technologies that we incorporate into our videos. 
as well as um, shifting points of view between, for example, the, the optical drill, so seeing something thr from a technological point of view to one that might be more organic, such as a mineral or um, material perspective. And so we do these multiple points of view uh, regarding the utilization of terrestrial and geographic resources. And these come out in performances and in sculptures, installations, as well as primarily films. We met 2012 above the Arctic Circle, um, where it's like six months dark and six months light. And we studied together in Contemporary Art Academy in Tromso, Master Studies. And in the same like building, there were also landscape architects. And we were inspired both being there, like new in the place, with their research also, and with all current geopolitical changes up there that are really visible and more close to the current like daily life. So somehow these invisible economical and political structures in Norway, in Arctic Circle, Norway, in Tromsø, um, yeah, somehow were inviting us to dig um, and look first at the beginning more in observing way. So the research in the landscape architects department, what they were doing was called perforated landscape and more like after the seismic scanning of Norway, they discovered even more mineral resources recently and basically after seeing these future maps of the north all coastline of the fjords, we were thinking about these wounds and kind of, yeah, like these endless holes and voids. And, and we were visiting in the first um, film, you're gonna see eight minutes, hollow earth, four different sites like spread between Russia, Norway, Sweden, mostly looking in active mines and kind of immersing ourselves in these very man-made environments with the slogans, for example, of Arctic drilling, penetration is our destination, your hole is our goal. And following this, um, we, we felt the need to establish I guess something that was a bit larger than, than our, ourselves and also seeing, meeting a lot of other um, researchers, practitioners, landscape architects, um, environmental activists that are, that are working with similar issues. We, we thought it would make sense to actually um, to grow into a kind of like a platform or an organism that, um, that has porous borders that people can join uh, for certain periods of time and then also uh, continue on their own research. So kind of like where we overlap with other groups or individuals. 
And so um, the origin of the name New Mineral Collective actually comes from, it's quite clear, um, New, which is uh, kind of proposing an alternative to um, older forms of profit and value, um, as well as Collective, which emphasizes this like reciprocal relationships with other fields of knowledge um, between the land and body, and, and also... I would say, as well as uh, worlds composed of nonlinear relations. So, counter-prospecting. This term, we had been working together, um, or thinking together, with a lady named Shashtin Ur, who's been very influential to us. And she's an architect. And um, she kind of came up with this term, counter-prospecting. So we thought we would read the official um, definition. It's like a bit wordy, but... but uh, important nonetheless. Um, Counter-prospecting is introduced as an experimental and interpretive praxis-based method that operates on two intersecting planes. It resists dominant and already given prospects while on a plane of anticipation. It reaches beyond these in a prospective exchange towards possible alternative, alternative futures. Um, so... Counter-prospecting is actually a really important part of our practice, and it's like the method that we use when we approach different circumstances, different sites. And yeah, to prospect means to search, and very often it's like also a legal process that you go through, which is staking claims, collecting soil, collecting data, um, submitting it to, for example, the Ministry of of mines in Canada. Um, so we recently went through processes of acquiring mineral licenses. Um, but getting back to counter-prospecting, we are interested in um, opening up possibilities of alternative forces or values. And this could um, be imagine, imagining digging for desire or poetry, love, passive resistance, lust, water, or deep time. And that's what each of these um, core samples are. This was a, a public um, commission done in a new school in Norway on the West Coast. And so we um, spoke to the students and kind of asked what values do you think they, that will be profitable, not profitable in the traditional sense, like gold or minerals, but but uh, forces that we want to see more in the world. And they came up with these, um, what we call seven future prospects. Along with that, uh, like in continuing to think about counter-prospecting, we um, also work with geotrauma healing therapies. One like this could be our proposal uh, for starting with the perforated landscape and then thinking it about like it like skin or body and like all these holes that we want to fill or heal. So we were using topographical maps of the actual drill holes and mm, mining claims and creating different sculptures. And part of our mandate, we say, like, we survey areas, stake claims, and acquire mineral licenses, um, meant to give permission to prospect different plots of land. But 
We've also been thinking about counter-prospecting as like, imagine if you just left these plots of land passive. So if you were to obtain mineral licenses, stake claims to certain plots, and then do the opposite of continuing to extract, what would be the opposite or what would be counter to that? And that would be to leave them as they are. And this is like an idea also that, an idea and concept that, um, that we've been exploring uh, and is also in Pleasure Prospects, um, some of our more recent work. Yeah, our different therapies include um, acupuncture healing therapy. So this could be healing points of the body or healing points in the earth. Um, so we're, we're interested also in like certain sites um, there can be blockages, whether that's like political, socioeconomic, um, geological blockages, and we're interested in piercing them with acupuncture um, to release certain energies, um, as well as sensory deprivation, point cloud therapy, hydrotherapy, balneotherapy, which is like a mud... Um, a mud therapy, so where you immerse yourself in uh, mineral-rich soils, and such as in the Dead Sea, for example, which we've done projects in, and um, exploring the idea of um, that your body is a mine, that actually our bodies can soak and prospect minerals and extract as well. Yeah, and so on a final note, um, we just wanted to mention the the song that you hear towards the end of the film uh, is actually a yoik, which is like a traditional song of the Sami people from the northern part of Scandinavia. And um, it's performed and sung by a musician, activist, friend, um, and fellow New Mineral Collective uh, member named Sara Maria Legaup. And um, she made this yoik specifically for um, yeah, it's okay. For uh, a case that's currently happening quite near uh, Tromsø, where we live, it's called the Reperfjord case, and it's um, a very, um, a very controversial scenario that's happening um, between Nusir, which is a very large mineral corporation, Norwegian corporation, um, as well as local protagonists and the local community, which includes uh, environmental activists and Sami reindeer herders. It's traditional Sami grazing lands. And so earlier in this spring, uh, the Norwegian government passed a law which would allow Nusir to um, both dig up copper from the earth in this area, as well as dump it in our local fjord. Um, so Sara Mariella has um, written a yoik, which is, a yoik is not about something, it is to embody um, a person or a place. And um, so she has, yeah, has made this for, um, it's kind of a lament or a prayer for Rapa Fjord. So I think we will leave you with the sound of the yoik, and yeah, thanks. It's quite impressive also because 
everyone on the side, like both, are talking about something that is really key, which is a revolution in energy and the way that we conceive energy. So funny how they both works coincide, no? One is investigating the sun, so obvious, so beautiful, so amazing. Just, you know, it's there, we all know it, but it's the major source of life and energy. And then the second work is kind of going through the same because minerals are energy, I think. That's what ignites the whole industry and what makes everything possible and in motion. And it completely overlaps with the question of course, of gender and how it's conceived, because we are conceived as the passion, the mothers, the ones, the earth. So, you know, all this um, um, language, all these uh, metaphors, and all these um, desires of uh, possession kind of coincide in a really interesting way. And, uh, and perhaps you can say something more about it, but it's, it's so interesting that it seems obvious that we need to think differently, and that's exactly what cannot be proposed as a rational project. You know, you cannot be a pragmatism in philosophy because philosophy always goes with an experience of reality. If the experience does not get challenged or different, it is absolutely impossible to think differently. That's why all these ideas of therapy or even exercises or um, thinking about different ways of performing it, they are fundamental because if you don't perform it, it's going to be impossible to just um, do anything with the um, tools of the Western, at least, Western um, philosophical machinery, which does not contemplate anything that, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a paradigm that takes the rational only into account and nothing else. So it's a very limited paradigm and we need to expand it. We know it's in centuries, it's nothing new. But I think that it's fundamental how artists are really much more into the revolution than philosophers themselves even, so. I mean, I, I thought it was quite interesting I mean, exactly this at the end when you described this yoke and you said that it's not um, about something, it embodies it. And I was thinking in both of your works how important dance and the body at the center, that the body was the, it wasn't about it, it was it. It kind of embodied it in this very, um, in this very straight one-to-one -one and yet completely mysterious way that in which the only way to talk about these, um, these ideas and these concerns is to actually watch the body navigating the landscape. And I was wondering if both of you um, could speak a little bit about this and how it was to work with the dancers and how it was to, you know, to basically place like, these dancers at the center of these films. Um, in my case, um, I, I really do think what you bring up is key, I, the phrase I use is that we must think ecologically with the body. Um, so that's really key. The dance piece is one very small segment of the four channels, but um, it was really incredible working with Alice Cummins because A, we workshopped it for a month in Melbourne before we presented it in Sydney. So we went to rehearsals every day and we just workshopped it in in the in the countryside, we weren't we were we were not in Melbourne. We were about two hours outside, 
Um, and we would go out for these walks and think about the nature around us. And uh, something that she kept impressing on me, anytime I would think to make a turn towards rationality or, or reason or to split the body and the mind in any way, like if even an inkling of that showed up in my language, she was quick to say, no, 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 it's all one, it's all one. Um, and every time, anytime we were using, and, and I'm, I was very heartened to hear that you guys are friends with the singer and that that was like a, a way of honoring that. Um, Alice and I also, there's one thing that talks about uh, the earth is our mother, even that phrase, for us to use it, we felt very, um, it, it comes from a Jara Jara um, man whom Alice knows, but we actually made the phone call to him, we asked if we could use it, we talked to the community, and that sort of very careful thinking I think is really important, and that's I think what, what I think we are all here today and yesterday to think through, like how do we make sure that we're honoring everyone, all the stakeholders and something that's happening around us? Yeah, in following that, I mean, <clears throat> um, thinking about the traje trajectory also of our work in the beginning, um, how it's shot, it's very much uh, Hollow Earth, it's very much from a, we say like an alien perspective because that's how we felt landing to this northern landscape. We were outsiders, you know, and we weren't directly involved in a lot of the conflict regarding resources. And then how do you approach that um, in a respectful way, you know? And, and from there, so it's like shot from this like alien perspective. And then you see in pleasure prospects, it's much more um, bodily in a way, moving away from this distance observational filmmaking to really trying to experience something subjectively or thinking with others through the body. And so um, the way that we worked with the dancers uh, was actually, I mean, we met with them and we told them about, you know, our uh, trying to recruit new members and also mm -hmm. talking about the history of mining dances all around the world and a lot of different cultures have their own mining dance in Japan, in uh, uh, Native Americans also have it. You can find like a plethora of it online. And, and so we also discussed like what does it mean um, for them? They were a really diverse group of, of women working together. And, uh, and so they actually came up with their own mining dance, which is like a ritual, not necessarily to bring on mining, to, but to counteract it. And so all of the movements that you see by the dancers, um, as well as ashes, um, they're drilling. They're using a lot of circular movements with their body to, um, to somehow, mm, I would say, like counteract or drill for uh, yeah, alternative forces. So that's kind of how we worked with the dancers, was just to like plant the idea of um, performing against the, the speed of hyper-capitalism and, and the extractive industry, and what can you do with your body to slow that down? As well as with synchronized swimmers, so also embodying that least productive, keeping the plots of land passive, so also 
all new mineral collective headquarters would embody that, like passive resistance. And with synchronized swimmers, you also see this drilling kind of movement. But drilling for <laughs> what? For other values, not for gold, iron, silver anymore, but for pleasure. So the film is called Pleasure Prospects. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Krajina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. The podcast is produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Institut du Souche, Art Station Foundation Switzerland. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Research assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and sound design Elena Cesar. Music Lusanne König. Technical support Esther Hunziger. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch. Or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institutu Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Grajina Kulczyk. More information can be found at museumsush.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Copyright Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institutu Sush, Art Stations Foundation CH 2020.